Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. Ben, good morning, church. How are we feeling? Feeling good? <laughs> all right. Well, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling real good. Uh, well, as Ben said, we're uh, continuing in a series called Courageous Church, and so we're moving along in that today. The series is based in the book of Daniel, and through this series, we're talking about how Christians can have the courage to stand strong for Christ during changing times. And actually, today, we're not going to be in the book of Daniel. So we're going to detour into the book of Jeremiah, and there's a reason for that. The book of Jeremiah, the text we're going to look at today, was written to the people in exile. So Daniel would have been among the people, and Jeremiah wrote them a letter telling them how to live in this new situation that they found themselves in. So this is, this is a, um, an, an adjacent text to the story of Daniel, where we're, we're going to hear specifically how do people live in the exile. Specifically, how do they live these uh, counterculturally? Like, how do they live within Babylon as a unique people in this pagan city? So, um, as we've already seen over the last couple of weeks, the time of exile was a judgment of God on the nation of Israel, particularly for their sin of idolatry. So, Nebuchadnezzar, he was the king of Babylon, and he was the king that defeated Israel. So God was behind all of this. God was orchestrating these events, and exile was God's plan. Nebuchadnezzar was empowered by God to defeat God's people. So Nebuchadnezzar was an instrument, right? Instrument in God's hands, an instrument of judgment. And so the people in exile, they needed to accept these circumstances and live with them. So it's hard to imagine what this whole experience would have been like. I mean, I've, I've thought about this a lot over the last few weeks. Like, what would it have been like to be, you know, a, a Jewish man or woman in Jerusalem or in the nation of Judah and to have your nation sacked by this pagan king and to have your, your family, your friends, your livelihood, everything taken away from you and you're carried off into a new city, new land, new, new everything. That's what they had to experience. And Nebuchadnezzar was a brutal guy. We saw that the first week. So during this time, you had false prophets. And the false prophets, they started piping up. And they're saying, like, hey, guys, uh, thus saith the Lord, this is not going to be that long. So the Lord says we're going to go back home, you know, here in a couple weeks. So, you know, just kind of chill for a few weeks, and God will work out the details, and we'll be back before you know it. The false prophets were saying this stuff. And so the Jews living there at the time, they're thinking like, well, I guess that's what God said, so we might as well not really do anything, just kind of hang out with our feet propped up like you're in an airport waiting on your flight, and then God will take us home. No big deal. That's, that's the attitude that was going on. Now, Jeremiah, all along, throughout his whole prophetic career, he was speaking about the judgment that was to come, which did come, and Jeremiah knows this reality is a long-term deal for them. So Jeremiah knows these false prophets are harming the people by telling them false words. So he writes a letter. He writes a letter to the exiles to speak directly into that situation. 
And there are two reasons for the letter. One is just to reassure them that God has not abandoned them. God still loves them. God still has a plan for them. He's not abandoned them or forgotten them. But the other reason is to instruct them about how to survive and even thrive as exiles in a pagan city. And they will do so by seeking the welfare of Babylon, which would have been really unexpected. So what we're going to do is go through this letter, and I see three principles of how we can apply the, this letter to our current situation. Three principles for building like a counterculture within uh, Cincinnati as a church. So let's dig in where the first point is for us to put down roots. Put down roots, and we're going to look at this at Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah chapter 29. And I'm going to start in verse 4. Jeremiah chapter 29, starting in verse 4. This is, this is all the letter from Jeremiah, okay? Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So here's what God says, you ready? Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Let's pause here. First, let's get the obvious thing out of the way. God is not telling them to assimilate into Babylon. He's not telling them, thus says the Lord, become Babylonian. Adopt their values, adopt, adopt their culture, you know, you know, give yourselves over to their way of life. God is not saying that at all. So that, that part is obvious. He's not telling them to, to intermarry with other Babylonians. I mean, all the things that have applied as far as God's moral law before still apply here. So they're still uniquely Jewish, but they're going to do their uniquely Jewish thing in Babylon. But what God t is telling them is specifically to maintain their uniqueness within Babylon. So there's some practical instructions here, and these practical instructions have a, a theological underpinning behind them. So verse 6, he says, multiply there, and do not decrease. So there's a positive and a negative command that say the same thing. Multiply and don't decrease. I want more, more of God's people to come out as a result of this time. Now, does that sound familiar? If, if you're familiar with the Bible, particularly Genesis 1 you'll know that it sounds like the creation mandate. It's the creation mandate of Genesis 1, verse 28. God tells Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Remember that? That's the creation mandate. And so it sounds like Jeremiah 29, 5 and 6 are a, uh, a restatement of the creation mandate. Hey, you're, you're supposed to continue to increase in number, and that is a sign of God's blessing and favor in your life. So in Genesis, that drumbeat of be fruitful and multiply, it just beats for 50, 50 chapters, this drumbeat of be fruitful and multiply. And in the book of Exodus, we see a situation that's somewhat similar to the exile. So in the book of Exodus, this was at the beginning. So this is before God's people had been given the land of promise, and they'd multiplied throughout the book of Genesis. And then in the book of Exodus, we see they've grown to this huge number, but they don't have a homeland. So all of God's people are living in Egypt under the rule of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh at that time is a wicked king. And uh, so that it's a similar situation. And here's what God's people did 
in uh, Exodus, this is chapter 1, verse 7, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So you see, this is at the beginning of the Bible. The God's people living in a foreign land, they are, they're under a foreign ruler, and they're multiplying. And this is an evidence of God's blessing in their life. They're fulfilling the creation mandate, even in that situation. And of course, the word exodus means, uh, it's like an exit. It's like God brings them out and gives them their own land. And then the exile is exodus in reverse. God sends them back under foreign rule because they didn't do what they were supposed to do in their own land. So in Babylon, what we've got here is a situation where God's people are living under the thumb of a pagan king, and God tells them, build houses, plant gardens, get married, have kids. That's God's, that's God's plan for them in exile. Why is this? Well, there's the time component. These are things that, that you do when you're planning on being somewhere a while, right? So... Since they're going to be there for a while, this is what they should do because this is what people do when they're settling in. You build houses, you plant gardens, you get married and you have kids. Those things strengthen them internally and it knits them together as a community. Those are the kind of uh, actions that they serve as like social stabilizers for a community. And it, it requires intentionality and routine to do all of those things. If you're going to build a house, you're going to put a lot of work and time into building it, and you're going to live in it, which means you're going to stick around for a while. If you're not going to stick around for a while, you live in a tent. But if you're going to stick around for a while, you're going to build a house. If you're going to plant a garden and then leave, what's the point of that? You plant a garden, but you're going to stick around for a while because you want to eat the produce, well, you know, at least a season. If you're going to, you know, being, having kids and getting married and doing all those things, those are things that you do when you're going to be around for a while because they are stabilizing forces within a community. So it's kind of like, you know, if you're going to pitch a tent, you're going, to, you're going to hammer some stakes into the ground, and those hold the tent in place. It's stable. It keeps it from blowing around. And so these things, houses, gardens, marriage, and kids, they're like anchor points that anchor this community of people within Babylon. So Jeremiah's message is essentially establish a stable community in Babylon. And live out your faith together for the rest of your lives. And the fact of the matter is, they're going to be there for 70 years. And it, this text mentions that. They're going to be there for 70 years. So most of them will never go back home. So get used to it. Let me make this application point here. Uh, and I'll make it in the form of an invitation. It's not like a, can't be like a command, thus saith the Lord, you must do this. But let me, let me give it to you as, as an application. Um, it's an invitation to you. And the invitation is this, people of Christ, the King Church, put down roots here. Put down roots in our city. Put down roots in Cincinnati. Put down roots in our church. Put down roots with one another. And establish a stable, let's establish a stable community together. Now, we already have, but we want to do that more. We want to increase. We want to grow. We want to multiply. We want our stable community to continue to grow because that is that is a sign of God's blessing, but it is also strategic. When you have a number of people that are growing and thriving um, because they're submitted, submitted to God, and they're doing this together, and they're anchoring themselves together. You've, you've probably heard us say this at times in the past, but we have a vision for our church to be like an oak tree, 
Oak trees, they, they, they grow big and strong and healthy, uh, but they don't always grow fast. And so it's a, it's a stable thing, and they last a long time. And that's what we want to do. And to do that, we'll need to have a committed core of people and a growing core of committed people that bring stability and consistency to our church life. Laura and I, we, we moved here 13 years ago. Is that right? 13 years? 13 years ago. Laura's shaking her head. Yes. Uh, Laura's my fact checker. You know, real-time, live fact checker. Whenever I get a date or a name wrong, she'll be able to tell me. Okay. 13 years we've been, we've been uh, we, it was when we moved here. And one of the things that we did that was an important, it was a step of faith because our salary came from support, but that there was a time, you know, it, had a, it was a time component to that. It wouldn't last forever because um, we needed to establish a church that would end up paying a salary for us. And so we, um, we decided when, whenever we moved here, we bought a house right away in the neighborhood that we wanted to minister to. And that's, we still live there. It's the house we live in today. At the time, it felt like a pretty big step of faith. And I remember we talked to a lot of people and they're like, uh, so what do you do? I'll tell them, well, I'm a pastor of a church. Oh, great. Uh, where is that? Well, it doesn't exist yet. <laughs> and they'll be like, Oh, and I could see the wheels turning, and nobody actually asked me, well, how do you get paid? But I'm sure they were wondering. You know? It's like, certainly, and of course, the bank wanted to know. It's like, how are you going to pay for a house when you're pastoring a church that doesn't exist? This sounds like a scam, you know? Um, but of course, it's like we had supporters, and the church came about, and you know, it all worked out. But it was a step of faith for us to, to anchor ourselves in a community by, by buying a house. And of course, we multiplied. We had a couple kids here, and uh, over the years, we've gotten to know other people, and we've established this, um, this church together, but we're anchored in the city. We're anchored in a community, and if the Lord wills, we're lifers here. I've been saying this for 13 years. I don't plan on ever leaving. You know, I want to be here for the rest of my life, and uh, excuse me, I'll, I pray that uh, many of you will have the same attitude. It's like, I'm here. I'm anchored here. I want to I do like Jeremiah... 29 says, and I want to anchor myself in a community um, for a long period of time. So consider this a big fat welcome mat here before all of you put down roots with us, get involved here, build a life uh, for yourself, for, for your family here in our church. So if you're new to CTK, Ben gave you a couple great things that you can do. Uh, you know, fill out a connect card, take a class, join a city group, um, serve on a team, all of these things. You know, some of you are college students, and, and many people in our church are college students that plugged in, and then when they graduated, you know, we're in a transient neighborhood. A lot of people move on, and that's expected, but a lot of people don't. A lot of people say, hey, this has been my church while I'm in college. I want to stick around. I want to build a life for myself here. So that's an invitation to you. That's the first point. Put down roots. Here's the second point. Seek the welfare of others. Seek the welfare of others. Now, let's Let's look at verse 7. Jeremiah's letter continues, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. This, this is an amazing verse. I mean, it's amazing just to read it, you know, in our own, just read it in English, you know, with a basic Bible knowledge. But um, historically, this is a fascinating verse. I read a few commentaries about it, 
And um, the commentaries I read, uh, two of them said the exact same thing about it. And this is what stood out to me. They said this command to seek the welfare of their captors, to seek the welfare of their enemies, is unparalleled in ancient literature. Nobody else would have ever said such a thing. So it's also the only place in the Old it's the, this is the only place in the Old Testament where God's people are told to do this, where they're told, seek the welfare of your enemies or pray for your captors. The only place. It's counterintuitive. No human being would come up with this on their own. The only reason why we can read this is because God revealed it, because God is saying something to us in it. So this could only come from the heart of God himself. And so we need to, we need to understand, like, what does this mean to seek the welfare of the city? And in our situation, what does it mean to seek the welfare of Cincinnati? If, and is that a fair application? Well, let's, let's talk about this. Again, we'll get the obvious thing out of the way. Seek the welfare of the city does not mean get on board with Nebuchadnezzar's agenda. Get on board with whatever he's doing. Now, if Genesis to Revelation, you know, the city of Babylon, it finds its origin biblically in Genesis 11. The Tower of Babel is a precursor to Babylon. From Genesis 11 all the way to the book of Revelation, Babylon is a symbol of evil. It is, it is like a, a, well, I won't say what it's called, but the, uh, the, the woman of Babylon, let's just say it that way, in the book of Revelation. I mean, like, this is a wicked place, and there is, so there is no getting on board. God is not saying, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, I changed my mind about that guy. He's a great guy, and in fact, the raping, pillaging, murderous rampage, I want you guys to get on board with that, support that, and just sort of give it religious cover as God's people. No, God is clearly not saying that. So to know what God is saying, we need to know what the word welfare means. What does welfare mean? Because that's what they're exactly told to seek. The Hebrew word for welfare, you may be familiar with it, is shalom. The word welfare here is shalom. A lot of times it's translated peace in the Bible. Here it's translated welfare. So there isn't an English word for shalom that captures the full weight of it. Every time, if we, since we don't have a word, we'd have to, you remember like the Amplified Bible? There'd be like 16 words you know, that you'd have to put in there to like really get the idea of what shalom means. And so welfare, well-being, peace, that's the best we have in English. But the word shalom conveys all the aspects of peace and safety and security and wellness and prosperity. All of that. But those are material things. And a lot of times, Christians, we stop there in our understanding of the word. But the word shalom encompasses broader things than that. Not just things going well with a thriving economy. It includes everything being in a rightly ordered relationship with God. So shalom is the way things ought to be. That would be the, the best way that I could think to define or explain or describe what shalom is. So whenever, whenever uh, Jeremiah says, seek the shalom of Babylon, he might as well be saying, seek to make Babylon more like the Garden of Eden. Or more like, you know, 
the, the new heavens and the new earth. Seek to make it more like what God would want a, a, a rightly ordered society to be like. Seek that. And then the rest of the verse, for in its shalom, you will find your shalom. So since you're here, the best thing for you can do is to try to make Babylon look more like the kingdom of God. That's shalom. So everything would be in its proper place. All human relationships are rightly ordered. All the people are at peace with God and at peace with one another because it is heaven on earth. So shalom is not just a material vision, which a lot of times that it's limited to that in Christian conversation. It's not limited to just material prosperity. It includes that, but those things are a fruit of God's blessing because people are also thriving and obeying God in, a, you know, in the spiritual sense. It includes both spiritual and physical aspects. God is on his throne, and his righteousness is manifest in all places. So Jeremiah 29.7 says, Seek the shalom of Babylon. Bring the righteousness of God to bear in Babylon. Now he says, for in its welfare, you'll find your welfare. So there is a degree of self-interest here. So, you know, the idea of rising tides lift all boats. So in the material aspect, if Babylon is thriving and their economy is, you know, crushing it, then that's going to that's affect them too. They'll be able to benefit from that. So there is a degree of self-interest there, but it's not merely self-interest because we know from the overall story of the Bible that God's heart is for all nations. God's heart is for all nations to experience shalom, even the most wicked, murderous nations like Babylon. We see this in the book of Jonah, very, the very radical message of the Assyrian, the brutal, bloodthirsty people, the Assyrians, the city of Nineveh. God, God would tell Jonah, calling them to repent. And Jonah was upset because he knew they would, because he knew, he knew that God wouldn't tell him to do it if he didn't intend for, if he didn't intend for that to, to come to pass. So God's heart is for this shalom to be experienced worldwide. And you go back to the creation mandate, and that's what God is saying in the creation mandate. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, rule over it. Let God's rule be manifest globally. So Jeremiah is telling the exiles, you guys missed it before, and you're being judged for your disobedience, your idolatry. Nevertheless, you're calling us to do in Babylon what you should have been doing in Israel. But now you're no longer going to be able to do it with the protection and the cover of a nation state that is supposed to be built around this same concept. You're going to be doing it in Babylon. And in God's ironic providence, that was a good thing for them because it purged them of their idolatry. By the time you get to the New Testament times, idolatry is no longer the major issue of God's people. If anything, we'd say like Pharisees. That was, that was like this sort of rigid legalism was, was, was more the spirit of the, the people at that time. They were not idolatrous the way you see them in the Old Testament. So what does this mean for us? Is it fair to take this message of Jeremiah and just plop it into 2022 and say, well, everybody seek the shalom of Cincinnati? Because we do have a different circumstance, right? We talked about this in the first week. We're not under God's judgment. 
We're freed. We're set free. We're liberated in Christ. Jesus was exiled on the cross for our behalf. He took our punishment and set us free. So does it apply to us? Well, let's see what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 to 15. And we'll see if it sounds familiar to you the way it sounds familiar to me. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. This verse sounds to me like Jeremiah 29. It sounds like Jesus is telling us as Christians to do something very similar, which is to bear witness to the kingdom of God where we are. As, of course, Jesus' words apply to us now. There's no contextual thing we got to do. We, we apply it directly. Jesus is telling us to do this, so we do it. So we, we, we set our city on a hill. We set our lamp, let it shine in the dark place. I was listening to Andrew Peterson's song, uh, Is He Worthy, this morning. It said, you know, all the darkness will not stop the light from coming through. Uh, do you believe that? We do. We can sing it later, maybe. Um, but that's, that's the idea, that we are God's people, that we, we seek the shalom of our city by being a city on a hill, by being salt and light, by being a lamp in a dark place. How do we do this practically? Well, we have um, a statement of faith as a church. It's a theological vision and mission statement. It's on our website. Uh, if you ever want to check it out, I, I mean, I would I'd recommend you looking it up sometime. If you go to our, I think it's who we are and then about us or something, and then it's, uh, it's linked in there. It's called, it says Statement of Faith. If you click it, you'll see a 15-page document that would probably delight you to read it because it talks about our theology, what we believe, but also what we do in practice. And there's one section that I want to read to you from our Statement of Faith that tells you what we're committed to do as, as a church in this seeking shalom idea. And just so you know, this, this section is a copy and paste straight from the Baptist faith and message. So all Baptist, Southern Baptist churches anyway, would, would say the same thing. So this is straight from the, the Southern Baptist, Baptist faith and message, year 2000. Here it is. Hopefully it's on the screen. Yep, there we go. All Christians are under obligation to seek to make the will of Christ supreme in our own lives, so there's the regeneration, salvation part, and in human society. Means and methods used for the improvement of society and the establishment of righteousness among men can be truly and permanently helpful only when they are rooted in the regeneration of the individual by the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ. In the spirit of Christ, then, this is what Christians do in the spirit of Jesus, having been regenerated, born again. Christians should oppose racism, every form of greed, selfishness, and vice, and all forms of sexual immorality, including adultery, homosexuality, and pornography. We should work to provide for the orphan, the needy, the abused, the aged, the helpless, and the sick. We should speak on behalf of the unborn and contend 
for the sanctity of all human life from conception to natural death. Every Christian should seek to bring industry, government, and society as a whole under the sway of the principles of righteousness, truth, and brotherly love. In order to promote these ends, Christians should be ready to work with all men of goodwill in any cause, always being careful to act in the spirit of love without compromising their loyalty to Christ and his truth. Now that's a mouthful, but that's a vision. And I find it compelling. That excites me to read that because that captures my heart from the beginning. Um, I would love for us to do this well. For us to seek the shalom of Cincinnati in a way that captures all of these things. And to, because all of these things is, it's in the name of our church. Christ the King, meaning Jesus is Lord. Jesus reigns supreme. It's in our mission statement. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. We mentioned this the first week, uh, or was it the second week? Recently. We mentioned this. I, mean, I said this. That what we want is to make society more Christian. Because a more Christian society is more just, more free, more loving, more thriving, more flourishing, more godly. That and in our effort to do that, that is seeking shalom, bringing the rule of God to bear within society. There's a number of different ways we can do it, and I could, we could probably talk about this for weeks. I'll give you, I'll give you a few practical things that each of us can do, but that's, that's, that's the big idea. God planted us here in Cincinnati to live countercultural lives in a secular city. Cincinnati is not Babylon. Cincinnati is a lot better than Babylon in that sense. And I praise God for that. And that is an influence of the Christian faith in our country and within our city. That's a good thing. So we talked a couple weeks ago about, you know, Christians can do this in positions of power and authority, you know, civil government and that sort of thing. Um, but I want to get to some, you know, interpersonal practical ways that each of us can do this that we see in Jeremiah 27, where Christians can seek shalom in Cincinnati. So here's three subpoints of my seek the welfare point. Okay, the first one is prayer. This is explicitly commanded: pray to the Lord on its behalf. I'm not going to read the text where Jesus said, "Pray for your enemies," because I don't want to give the idea that you know we should see our city as an enemy. But if we did even, we should still pray for them because Jesus himself told us to pray for those who persecute you in Matthew 5, the same text where we read the other text, the salt and light one. So we are called as Christians to pray for people regardless of how they view us. And we believe in the power of prayer. We believe that prayer does change things. We trust God's power to be at work in us. So what are we praying for? Well, Jeremiah 29 says we pray for shalom. We pray for God's rule to be brought to bear, to be manifest within our city. I think Paul might have, I don't know for sure, but he might have this idea in mind when he wrote 1 Timothy 2. So listen to what Paul says here in 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 4. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, which is asking God for things, 
supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. All those are different manifestations of how we pray. All these things to be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So do you see what he's doing there? We should pray all different kinds of manners of prayers. We pray this for all people. We pray it for kings and those who are in high positions. That, the result being, that we may be able to go about what we want to do, which is to live our faith publicly, freely, to be able to worship God and to exercise our faith in all, in all different ways, that we may be able to live godly and dignified. And then he goes on to say, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So if we want all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, then we need to be able to do what we do as Christians. We need to be able to live our lives in godly and dignified ways. We need to be able to share our faith, to be able to proclaim the goodness of Christ, the gospel of Jesus. So all these things hold together, and we're told to pray for it. You might think this is dumb. That's okay. I prayed for the Bengals to win last night. <laughs> now, it's not that I you know, wish anything other than shalom on Tennessee. However... It's good for our city. Our city is kind of in a better mood, at least to a degree, because of something good that's happening that we all share. And so, in, if you think I'm ridiculous, um, that's fine. Total freedom to think I'm ridiculous. <laughs> but I'm like, is there not a bit of a good mood cast over our city because we got a winner? It's exciting. It's fun. And I, I like that because I like our city. I like our city to be in a good mood. I like our city to, to have something that we, that we enjoy together. That, I mean, I see random people wearing Bengals gear. I'm like, hey, man, who day? You know, and just like there's, there's, there's a sense of, of togetherness that is good for us. Now, whatever thing, it could be a drug dealer. Who knows? Whatever they're into, it doesn't mean I'm into that thing. But it does, it does say like, hey, there's something that I can share with you that that is good for both of us that we enjoy. And that's, I think that that's, in, in that sense, it is a good thing for us to pray for our city. And when economy's going well, when there's jobs, whenever people have their needs met, whenever we have fewer broken marriages, fewer broken homes, whenever we have uh, people that are, fewer people in homelessness, or, or what all the various things that concern us. When those things are being addressed, it does have an effect. And Whenever there can be some sense that God is behind it, then we can represent Jesus. I'm like, hey, Jesus, this is a manifestation of God's kingdom. This is what it's like to live under God's rule. It's not the iron fist of Christ. No, it's like the blessed flourishing of submitting the knee to Jesus. That's what we're representing. So as a church, I, we pray for our city, pray for our economy, pray for jobs, pray for people in need. We pray. A couple years ago, I found it helpful to write out some specific prayers, and I've been, I've categorized them, these four different prayers. I pray for myself, for my family, for my church, and for my city. And I just have these little prayer cards, and I, I pray these things routinely, and it, it helps orient my heart towards the goodness of God that I desire to see happen. 
Another thing you could do is uh, you can hop on a prayer call with us on Thursday mornings. Uh, every Thursday, 6.30, you can go to the public on our website and get the link to it. And regularly, I heard a woo. Was that Eugenia? Yeah. <laughs> Amen to her woo. Um, we can do this. Like, we can pray for our city together, and it's, it's a delightful time. Okay. Second point of my sub-point. We pray. Second, we do good works. So good works is, I, I would categorize this mostly within the material, earthly aspect of shalom, which is the physical well-being of people. So it's, it's like we pray, and then we put feet to our prayers by doing good works to be a blessing to people, to help people in need. So let me read Matthew 5.16 again. Jesus said, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now the others... Let your light shine before others. The others in that text, I understand that to refer to non-believers who need to witness, who need to behold the good light or the light of Christ so that they can give glory to God. So I see it's like we're doing these good things before others so that they can respond. Over the years, our church has connected with, I, I couldn't count, hundreds of people, I am certain, through good works that individual people have done, but also have been orchestrated, organized events that we've done to help people or bless them in some way. I hear people serving friends and families and neighbors, co-workers. Um, Josh and Allie Alanis, I, I sent them a text yesterday. I'm like, I'm going to brag on you in church. Do you mind? And they're like, well, okay, I guess. But um, Josh and Allie have uh, fostered some foster kids. I mean, I just, it, it, that, that, that lands squarely in the middle of what I would call good works because it is Christians doing a good thing for a good reason that God would want done. And so they bring these kids into their home. These kids needed a home and they were brought into a Christian home with Christian parents. And these kids are surrounded by a Christian church that loves them and supports their parents with a ministry, CTK fam. That's, that's shalom in action, right? I mean, that's, those are the kind of things that do make a difference. Good works like this, they meet a tangible need in our community while bearing witness to the light of Christ. And just in the last year, several, we did several bigger church-wide events. I'll highlight a couple of these. Uh, we did an oil change outreach. Um, 30 people um, you know, had to register in advance. We'd have the right filter and stuff. But we, did, we changed the oil in 30 people's cars. People that show up that sort of thing um, are people that they're, a lot of times they're driving beaters and, they, and this this extends the life of their car. It meets a real need. Uh, we did a, um, like a block party type of thing in Grant Park and, uh, you know, had to grill out and fed a bunch of people. We did Fam Fest uh, a few months ago, um, which was, so I was out of town, unfortunately, but I hear that this place was just berserk with people running everywhere. Praise God. That's awesome. It's like, that, that, that is a, a, a tangible way that we're like, hey, we want to, we want to bless you in, in a way. Um, we have partnership with Life Forward. My wife works there, um, but this is not a conflict of interest. We supported them before that. <laughs> but Life Forward is a ministry that ministers to women with unplanned pregnancies to help them make life-affirming choices. And so we've done a fundraiser for them. We, they did a Strides for Hope, like a, you know, like a running, walking event um, in the fall, and uh, many people in our church participated in that. We have Benevolence. Um, did you know that we have a money set aside for benevolence to meet, meet needs? I asked David, David Borson this week, I'm like, how much did we use in benevolence fund last year? 
And he said it was about $15,000 that was given to meet practical needs of people. And that's, that's your money, right? I mean, it's your tithes, your money, your offerings that uh, were used to do a good work that was connected to a church where a person can know this, this came to me because of people that love God. It's a quick sample, but those are different ways that people are serving our community with tangible good works. So prayer, good works, evangelism. Here's the third one, evangelism. So our theological vision and mission statement that I read earlier mentions that good works are ultimately um, rooted in and helpful and permanent through people that are regenerate people that uh, know Jesus, they're regenerated by the saving grace of Christ. So the way that we seek the ultimate shalom of our city is by proclaiming the gospel and inviting people to believe in Jesus. And this is the aspect of shalom that matters the most. But it is, it is the one that is, uh, I mean, it's, like it's one that ultimately it's in the Lord's hands, you know, to by his regenerating power to transform a person's heart. We don't have power over that, but we have power over proclaiming. So we do evangelism. We invite people to believe the gospel. Let me read to you the uh, last couple verses of that second, or 1 Timothy 2 text. It says, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Jesus said in another place, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? This is the aspect of shalom that matters the most. So if we're doing good works, but we're not doing evangelism, then we're missing the mark. Because we're, we're only doing a part way shalom. We're doing the part of shalom that feels good and people like. <laughs> because they're being served with a good work. Um, but we want to do the whole prayer is the power of God. We do good works, but we also tell the gospel. There's no true shalom apart from faith in Christ. So this, I mentioned our prayer call earlier. Um, this is a regular focus of that prayer call. We pray for people to share Christ boldly with others where they live, work, and worship. We had uh, you know, a couple months ago, one woman shared on the call that she was going to share her faith with a family member who was somewhat hostile. To the Christianity, and she was nervous about it. So we prayed for her. And then the next week, um, she was like, hey, let me give you an update. She followed through, and she was bold. And the conversation went much better than expected. So it was an open door. She was able to, to seek the shalom of this family member by pleading with this family member to, um, to give his life to Christ. And that's, that's, uh, that's obedient. That, that, that is faithful. We celebrated with her. A lot of our kids now are getting old enough, we're reaching this age where they're, they're comprehending the gospel and making their faith their own. Um, and so we saw the need to do a baptism class for kids. And so you know, last year we, we took a lot of kids through a baptism class where they were uh, explicitly called on to, to believe the gospel. And uh, you, know, you know, the kids all expressed that and some of them were ready to be baptized. My son was among them, um, but we baptized lot of our own. So we're kind of doing the thing we mentioned earlier, build houses and have kids and so on. But they're, we're bringing these kids into the church like with a formal declaration of faith in Christ and baptism. Now, 
I'll move on here because we have another sermon that will be just about evangelism in the modern world, and that's coming up in a few weeks. So let me just let's hit this, this final point here briefly. Cling to your eternal hope. So that's the third big point. Put down roots, seek the welfare of our city, and cling to our eternal hope. So let me just read the, the last few verses here. Verse 10. Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, shalom, and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So Jeremiah 29, 11, one of the most famous verses in the Bible. You probably got it written on a coffee mug somewhere. It's a very famous verse. And it's famous because it sounds like God wants to buy me a yacht. He's got these plans of prosperity for me. And what could be better than that? And of course, if, if you think verse 11 is God's promise to give you a yacht or an otherwise pain-free life, I'm afraid I've got some bad news for you. Because that's not what the verse means in context. Verse 11 does not promise you a new car, a dream job, a fancy house. This verse is God's reassurance that in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, God has not abandoned us. And so we have to be patient while working out the plans that God has called us to. God is working out his part, but he does give us a part to play. He invites us to participate in the working out of his plan for the world. So Jesus, in his life, death, and resurrection, he broke the curse of sin. He provided cleansing from our sin and forgiveness. He defeated the power of death. He inaugurated the kingdom of God. He unleashed the power of the Holy Spirit in the world. He established the church and sent us out into every nation he put the principalities and the powers of this world on notice that their time was up and the victory of Christ is certain. Jesus did that. And God's plan eternally is to eliminate all evil, to bring the fullness of the kingdom of God, the, the perfection of shalom to us, to earth, and to give us an eternal future and an eternal hope. And so our part is to put down roots, get to work. Seek shalom in the city God's placed us in. We do that with prayer, with good works, with evangelism, clinging to this hope of Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you have given us this promise, that you love us, and that we can have the reassurance that you have not abandoned us. I thank you, God, for the blessing of living in Cincinnati in 2022, for all of its trials and headaches that we experience. Thank you, God, for the blessing of living here at this time and for the calling that you've handed to us to live in this way. Lord, I want to pray back to you these promises that we see in this text. We tell us that 
Our time on earth may last a long time, but it's not forever. And we need to trust you and be patient. And Lord, we hear your word that you're not out to get us, that you've got plans for us. You've got something wonderful in store for us. And when it's all said and done, we trust that we'll get it and we'll see that it's better and more glorious than we can imagine. So for now, God, help us to come to you in prayer. Thank you for the promise that you're listening and that you're still here and that we'll find you when we seek you with a whole heart. Help us, God, by the power of your spirit to obey you in everything you've called us to. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com.